Hey, I'm Jim McGinnis, and this is Stories We Can Tell. At its heart, reflections on history, literature, and music. Stories about individual journeys and struggles and victories. It's about Americans. America, or as much as I have seen. I've been teaching and coaching down here in my hometown of Melbourne, Florida, for the past 35 years. And three years ago, I wrote a book called Tending to the Past. Imagine that, Reflections of an American History Teacher. Since then, I've published a collection of poetry called Point South, mostly about my love for Florida. Surely a verse or two will slip in from time to time. Many years ago, a friend of mine gave me two cherished gifts, a book of Frost poetry and a John Prine record. Thanks, Ferg, wherever the twain shall meet. From there to Carl Sandburg and Hemingway to Jim Harrison, Jim Lepper, and old Jimmy Buffett. My gumbo of influences may help explain what you hear. So thanks goes out to all the links in the chain. Miles to go. Miles to go. weekend, but I rallied, wanted to keep the momentum up with uh, tending. This is the story of how we begin to remember, as Paul Simon would tell us. I was sitting on the back porch pondering Elliot's treason, reading just my second book of this, The Hurricane Season. Again, it dealt with Jefferson, and yet another look at the mystery of America. My attention shifted first to the brown dog lying at my feet and then to all my summer chores that would take me out into the heat. But then, back to the great Virginian. Something kept me there in front of the fan, planted in my seat. By the way, Eliot's treason refers to my sister's favorite quote, the last temptation and the greatest treason is to do the right thing for the wrong reason. I hear that in my ear often. The two books I read that summer were powerful. After finishing Jacob Needleman's American Soul for at least the second or third time, I took up Gary Wills' Inventing America. I try to read everything Wills writes, and as always, this one didn't let me down. In this work, Wills re-examined Jefferson's influences in writing the Declaration of Independence. On that humid morning, I read on, one more lesson he had to teach, of his belief in a moral sense of benevolence slumbering in each. Don't need a prophet or a prince, said he, to tell us right or wrong. An inner voice, the conscience, it's been here all along. The Liberty's apostle owned a slave, or several, or many. How could it be that he was first to write a law to set a people free, but could not bring himself until the end to emancipate dear Sally? A hero? You say now with the sin that he commits, he preaches from the pulpit of the hypocrite. A hero? I say yes, because he's fallen. Oh, hypocrisy, our favorite sin. And Jefferson knew his crime. He saw it plain. He smelled the stench and felt the pain. But if moral contradictions 
are the measure of a man, then who is worth a damn among us? And I've heard others say it from the deep and dark recesses of our own self-betrayal. There, the force of moral vision rises. Thomas Jefferson departed from his contemporaries by embracing the moral sense, a conscience, as a separate faculty, believing it to be the basis for all politics and morality. Now the terrible irony of Jefferson's philosophy lies in the burdens of his own conscience by embracing the principles of liberty and equality far beyond his contemporaries, while still clinging to the depravity, his word, of slavery. Jefferson wrestled with the moral instinct he claimed exists in all of us. I guess it could be said that this conscience allows us to know what's right, but it doesn't necessarily compel us to do what's right. That contradiction haunted the red-haired wonder all his days. Now, Needleman's work, The American Soul, has been a book I've revisited several times. As I leafed through it again, I saw the many margin notes and highlighted phrases. I'm kind of rough on a book. I realized that what an impact the book has had upon me. His explanation of the role of heroes and why we need them has greatly influenced my thinking. Needleman believed that it was essential to see heroes for what they really were, flawed characters filled with weaknesses and doubt. But in each of them, another greater force existed. It took me a while to figure out what was going on in all those Greek tragedies. You remember those? They were just having some, giving us some lessons on human behavior. Each hero's story represented a great struggle between our two natures, angel and devil. In each case, a great strength collided with great weaknesses or unwinnable unwinnable circumstances. American heroes represent that dual nature. The stories of Washington, Jefferson, Lincoln, Martin Luther King, Franklin Roosevelt, and John Kennedy are all stories of men overcoming, overcoming obstacles and transcending flaws. Unfortunately, over the past few decades, we've done our best to kill our heroes. It seems we're guilty of focusing on stories of only one side of their nature. The American hero is either regarded as a superhuman figure with unattainable virtue and no value to our lives, or as a deeply flawed, overrated hypocrite with little or no relevance. Either way, they stand in the park as statues, for the moment, shoulders adorned with pigeon shit. In his discussion of heroes, Needleman alluded to the Greek notion. Although humans are dark, selfish, and contentious, they have the power to do good. Needleman believed that heroes and myths play an indispensable role in the American story. But the mythic must include both the real and the ideal, fidelities and flaws. Once again, it comes back to human nature. Whether it was Washington's aloofness, Kennedy and King's philandering, or of course Jefferson's contradictions. We don't get parts, we don't get to keep 
parts of America. Uh, we get all of it. There are many American stories yet to be told, but not, not for the sake of replacing other ones, but to add to our narrative. In the words of Reagan, multiplication, not division. As I said, we don't get to keep parts of America. We're stuck with the whole package. Along with the prophet Lincoln, we get his depression and his eccentric wife. Families get the drunk uncle along with everybody else. We can't know everything. Our knowledge is gonna be limited, but if we grasp the essential truth that the story is always a complicated one, then we can use what we do know to understand America as a struggle of human nature. Where once Lincoln thought of the enormous loss of life during the Civil War as the cost of hypocrisy, he came to believe that there was a price to be paid in order to make a people worthy of such a country as ours, built upon such a lofty proposition, that of human equality, equality and liberty. We were bound to fall short of that great idea, to fail. And what we, can, we consider to be the greatest speech since Sermon on the Mount, Lincoln at Gettysburg mentioned nothing about North or South, nothing about slavery. He spoke of Americans, all Americans, struggling over the definition of freedom, testing whether a nation so dedicated and so conceived can long endure. There's no part of that struggle that should be censored or forgotten. America is not great because it is English or German or Japanese. It is great because of its promise of freedom and equality to everyone. So maybe this is a story, as Paul Simon says, of how we begin to remember. Not only should we stop trying to block out pieces of our past and knock them down, we need to remember more. It's about bearing the burden of our collective past and how we become worthy, as painful as that is, some sometimes is. We should be courageous enough to look at all things over which the American flag is flown, good, bad, and ugly. Remembering Sand Creek and Wounded Knee, along with Selma and Concord, bring us closer to the idea. Maybe that's it. What we are withholding makes us weak, as Frost said, and we must forthwith find salvation in surrender. Have a good day. Fair winds. Thank you.